Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troyer, host. Each episode, we look at a different book in the public policy arena and talk to the author about the prospects for that person's public policy solutions. This week, we will be talking to Sally Pipes, the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute out in Northern California, about her book, The Pipes Plan, The Top 10 Ways to Dismantle and Replace Obamacare. Many conservative critics of the Obama health care law have talked about getting rid of the law, repealing the law, overturning the law in various ways. But Sally takes a different approach. She talks about repeal to be sure, but she also tries to come up with an alternative vision for what would replace the Obama health care law if she were successful in her efforts to get rid of it. So without further ado, let's talk to Sally Pipes. Sally Pipes, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Well, thank you, Tevi. It's great to be here. It's a real pleasure to have Sally on the program today. Her husband, Charles Kessler, is a professor and mentor of mine, and so it's really a great honor to have her with us today. I wanted to talk to her first a little bit and ask her to tell us who she is and how she came to write this book. Well, thank you, Tevi. Um, I'm Sally Pipes. I'm president of Pacific Research Institute. I've been heading the institute up for uh, just over 20 years. I came from Canada. I'm now an American citizen, but I grew up under single-payer Medicare health care, um, came to the U.S. in 91, and have been working on health care ever since with Hillary Care, single-payer initiatives in California, so really a follower of health care. I'm an economist by training. I came to write this book because in 2010, I published my first book with Regnery called The Truth About Obamacare, and that the the reason for doing that was because when I heard Nancy Pelosi say, we have to pass this bill so that we can find out what's in it. So in 270 pages, I wanted to be able to tell Nancy um, that she didn't have to read the 2,700 pages. And then, so that was very successful. But people kept saying, people on the left kept saying, well, you know, the Republicans, the conservatives, they're always talking about repealing the legislation, but they have no, um, no new ideas. So I thought, I'm going to write a short book the Pipes Plan, the top 10 ways to dismantle and replace Obamacare so that the Republicans and candidates and people out there can really, you know, have some 10 points that they could talk about and put into a replacement agenda. You said that this is your first book, or I guess this is your second book, but you had a previous book with Regnery. Did you have other books before that? Uh, yes. Um, my first book on health care came out in uh 2004, Miracle Cure, How to Solve America's Healthcare Crisis and Why Canada Isn't the Answer. And Milton Friedman was alive then. He wrote the foreword to it. My second book was out in 08, The Top Ten Myths of American Healthcare. And Steve Forbes wrote the foreword to that one. And you had Art Laffer do the foreword to this one. So you have some impressive foreword writers. Right. It's just I have a lot of friends who are nice to me. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you you said that this is the the top ten ways to dismantle and replace the legislation. But a lot of the focus in the book and in the answers is about repeal. That it seems to me that repeal of the Obama health care law seems to be the underpinning necessary step in your view for how to go forward. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean I 
you know, I've supported appeal repeal of IPAB, uh, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which passed the House, but of course hasn't been taken up by the Senate, the Class Act, the long-term care provision. I, but the long-term goal for me is to repeal the whole law, and then we can start again, and we hope in 2013 with um, a new um, Congress, I hope the Republicans take the House, uh, take back, keep the House, take back the Senate, and perhaps a Republican president who is going to really push Congress to uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with a lot of the ideas that I have because I want to empower doctors and patients. We all want affordable, accessible, quality care, but we're not going to get that by the government taking over more and more of our health care system. You know, one of the reasons a lot of people said that the Obama health care law was successful is that the Republicans didn't have their own alternatives. And I think one of the things you saw that happened in the process of the fight over the Obama health care law is the development of a whole new generation of conservative voices on health care. Uh, do you feel that you were kind of lonely in the trenches on health care for many times and for many years and that now you've been joined by uh, new, new players in the battle? I have a whole lot of new friends, Tevi. <laughs> um, um, absolutely. You know, back in I came to the U.S., as I said, in 91, 93, 94, we had Hillary Care. But it was very, very difficult. I felt like a, a lone voice in the wilderness. And, of course, you know, being in the think tank business, you have to raise funds from individuals and foundations. Very, very hard to raise money. And I kept thinking, well, I'm just going to press on. So... Um, in a way, um, uh, uh, President Obama campaigning it when he was a senator, wanting to wanting to make um, health care reform his number one domestic policy issue. He did that. And, of course, um, he got it through. And I – well, it's kind of a funny story, but um, my OBGYN um, has um, – in San Francisco has um, – people um, like Nancy Pelosi as patients, and I asked him on the Wednesday before the bill passed on the Sunday whether he thought it would pass, and he said he'd spoken to Nancy Pelosi on the Monday and that she had told him she had the vote. So when I wrote a piece on the Sunday, March 21st, for Mark Cunningham at the New York Post, he said, what way are you going to write the column? And I said, that it passes. He said, you're kidding. I said, well, my OBGYN is my sage, and he said she, Nancy Pelosi has the votes, and sure enough, late that night, Sunday night, it did happen. So without violating HIPAA, do you and Nancy Pelosi share the same OBGYN? <laughs> well, I don't know whether she still goes to him, but actually I'm going um, next week for my checkup. So, um, um, But interestingly, I went to this OBGYN because it was Rose Friedman, Milton's uh, wife's OBGYN. He was trained at the University of Chicago, and Rose always said, since they were at the University of Chicago for so many years, that anyone who's trained at the University of Chicago is good enough for me. So I thought, if it's good enough for Rose Friedman, good enough for me. That may be even a better story that Milton Friedman's wife and Nancy Pelosi share the same OBGYN. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, unfortunately, <laughs> she's passed away, but she did live to be 99, so she had so, it. So long. she was right with the uh, selection of OBGYN. Um, there are a couple of things that jumped, jumped out at me as, as interesting and, and different um, in, in your book. Um, one, in the area where you're talking about um, how to pay for health care, uh, you do advocate eliminating the mandates in both the individual mandate and the employer mandate, which, uh, which are both part of the Obama health care law. But you said that once you establish a competitive market, you would want to remove the tax advantage for both employer-based and individual insurance, and that individual tax advantage is something that you would establish as part of your plan. So are you saying that in the future, purchasing health insurance would not be tax-favored? Well, I think... Um, it- 
the, the federal government got us into this mess in the first place in 1943 when wage and price controls were in. Employers got the ability to write off the cost of health care, and we as employees, of course, get our health care tax-free. Our salaries are, of course, slightly lower, but, um, but the problem is that health insurance is not portable, and if you lose your job, you go out into the individual market and you have to buy it with after-tax dollars, and if you have a chronic or pre-existing condition, it can be pretty expensive or maybe not even available. So in the interim, I would like to see um, individuals be able to get to change the tax code so individuals can get their health insurance with pre-tax dollars as well. And then, in, and I also think that we need, to, if the feds wanted to do something, they should have beefed up the high-risk pools the states run so that those people in transition could get health coverage until we get a properly functioning market. Then in the long run, I would like to see a competitive market in health care, health insurance build up, and that we will all move out of employer-based coverage and into individual um, insurance coverage, which is the way it should be. Health insurance should be there for catastrophes and not for not we shouldn't have first dollar coverage, which you know most people have no idea. Sixty percent of Americans have employer-based coverage. Most people have no idea what what the health care costs their employer and you know, even the CBO recently came out and said up to 20 million Americans, you know, will probably lose their employer-based coverage um, under Obamacare. And remember, President Obama said over and over again, if you like your health insurance and you like your doctor, nothing will change. Well, things are starting to change. But I would like to get away from employer-based coverage. And, you know, if we want to set up a tax uh, credit system depending on income levels, that will be fine. But I don't I don't want to see it um, um I want to see the tax code changed for for everybody in the long run. You mentioned the, this issue of drop coverage and, and President Obama's promise that if you like your health care, you can keep it. And you cite a number of studies in there that show that that promise is unlikely to be kept. Uh, you have a CBO study that says that um, the number of people with employer-based coverage would be 7% lower in 2014 than it would have been otherwise what's going to happen? What are the motivations that would lead employers to drop coverage as a result of the new bill? Well, last year, Tebby, um, Kaiser Family Foundation came out and said in 2011, the employers were paying 9% more for their employer-based coverage, average family plan, $15,073, up 9% over 2010. But the year previous, prior to Obamacare, um, employer-based coverage went up 3%. So, you know, that's a lot of money for um, employers, $15,000. And so I think under the law, if any employer with 50 or more employees starting in 2014, um, if um, they um, provide health insurance, and but if anyone on their staff um, um, receives a subsidy from the federal government to buy health insurance in the exchange, they would pay a $2,000 per employee fine um, so that people all people would get insurance in the exchange. A lot of employers, and we're seeing that already, are going to say it's a lot cheaper to pay $2,000 per employee rather than paying $15,073 for insurance. So McKinsey said a third of employers would drop coverage, a third of that 160 million Americans. CBO has been revising that number. Um, Doug Holtz-Eakin, who you know, um, he has said, you know, probably uh, 30 million people will lose their employer-based coverage. But employers you know, have to make a profit. They're not like the government. They can't say we're going to tax Tevi and Sally more um, in order to cover their costs. So I think it's it's very likely that people will not be able to keep their health insurance um, under Obamacare. Of course, we're hoping, I don't know, I'm hoping that the Supreme Court on June 30th will rule that the whole law is unconstitutional, and then we can move forward uh, with um, 
a replacement agenda. Doug Holt-Deegan, whom you mentioned, was the former head of the Congressional Budget Office. Another issue that you talk about is premium increases. The idea of the Obama health care law was the promise that they would bend the health care costs down. It does not appear that that is going to be the case. And you mentioned your colleague and a friend of mine, John Graham, who says that an additional uh, benefit mandate in- explains an increase in the number of insured of about 0.25%. And these benefit hikes also lead to premium hikes. So can you talk about the, the, the benefit mandates in the, in the new law? Absolutely. Um, Kathleen Sebelius is, has been very vocal on, you know, uh, pointing out, as Nancy Pelosi did, that the insurance companies are the villains. And under Obamacare in 2014, uh, there will be the essential benefit plan, um, which the states are now going to run. But in each state-based exchange, there will be an essential benefit plan. An insurer to participate in the exchange will have to cover uh, those particular um, mandates. And we already have about 2,000 mandates across the country um, for insurance companies. Um, I think, as, as John Graham has pointed out, they will increase the cost of insurance. And I think a number of insurance companies um, will probably decide to get out of the insurance business because if you have to provide all of these benefits, they're expensive. And you might think we can't make ends meet. And we've seen Principal Financial get out of the um, health insurance industry. We've seen Aetna, you know, making uh, not providing individual and small-based insurance for small businesses um, in Colorado and in Indiana. So I think you know, this essential benefit plan is going to make it difficult for insurers. And if, if, if eventually private insurers are crowded out of the market, we will all be left in a single-payer Medicare-for-all system, which I believe is what President Obama ultimately wants for us to have a Canadian-style Medicare-for-all system. And interestingly, countries like Great Britain and Canada have found their costs are out of control, long waiting lists, and so they're trying to bring in some you know, market-based reforms, and yet we're moving down the path to sort of a system that, that isn't going to bring about affordable, accessible quality care. And the cost, as, as, you know, the president wanted a bill that cost $900 billion over 10 years. The CBO said 940 over 10 years. But today, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, the Congressional Budget Office revised their number at $1.76 trillion, 2012 to 2022, and I'm sure you agree with me, if it's not repealed and replaced, we're probably looking at $2.5, $2.6 trillion from 2014 to 2024. Yeah, I think either way this is going to have to be revisited because if it's repealed, obviously we'll have to do something new. If it's not repealed, I think the costs are going to be so high that we'll have to do something else around 2014, 2015 uh, once, it's, once it's implemented. Uh, but but about, back to this issue about the essential benefit mandates, um, you talked about the... Uh, federal mandates that are being imposed. One of the Republican proposals is to allow the purchase of insurance across state lines. Wouldn't these federal mandates make that idea of purchasing uh, insurance across state lines somewhat moot because then the federal government is telling what what insurance levels have to be and then you can't get the benefits of a nationwide market? Right, that, that is going to be difficult. And, of course, Kathleen Sebelius has also said, you know, that any insurance company that increases their premium by more than 10%, you know, she's going to be, she's sort of the big overseer um, on all of that. And, and while she can't get them to, re, re, you know, turn back those, those premium increases, I think it's going to be another um, difficult thing for insurance companies to not be able to, if the cost of health care is going up, when you add, you know, $2.5 million children up to the age of 26 on their parents' plan. All of these things, free preventive care, are adding to the cost. So um, 
I'm a big proponent of buying health insurance across state lines. People like Tom Coburn, you know, are Tom Price. Um, it, it will be difficult, but I think if we could have a competitive market and a young man like you, Tevi, if you lived in New York, I mean, you know, you might not want to pay $500 a month for insurance, but you might be able to find a plan in Arizona or in Idaho or Indiana that suits your needs. And I think this is something that will really open up the market and build competition rather than reducing competition. Uh, assuming that the essential benefits uh, from the federal level are, are not too great to right. prevent this from happening. Yes. Uh, so one thing that the Obama health care law really emphasized was access. And in fact, uh, I think there was a good case to be made for health reform based on the fact that there's 47 million uninsured, and we can debate that number. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems that A, there will still be a lot of people without access in 2019 when the bill is fully implemented, according to CBO. And in states that do have a mandate, there's still a lot of people without access. Why Why does the federal government and why do state governments fail when they try and impose this requirement that you purchase insurance? Well, I mean, yeah, if you look at the, the number last year from the Census Bureau, it was 50.2 million Americans without health insurance. And as you know, just because you don't have health insurance doesn't mean you don't get health care. Anybody, even illegal immigrants, can turn up at an emergency rooms under MTALA and get get health care. So um, a lot of those 50.2 million Americans are people who are between jobs. They've lost their job and they can't get insurance or they feel they can't afford it. But under the Affordable Care Act, you know, they, the government says they're going to add about 32 million people out of that 50.2 million to the roles of the insured. They're going to add 18 million people to Medicaid, the program for low-income Americans, and then about 16 million will get these subsidies from the federal government based on a sliding scale. But the CBO said still 23 million Americans will be uninsured under the Affordable Care Act. And at the, if you look at the mandate starting in 2014, um, the fine is only $95 going up in uh, 2016 to $695 or 2.5% of income. You know, if, if you're a young person, you think $95 is pretty cheap compared to, you know, buying insurance. We only have about 9 million Americans out of that 50 million who are chronically ill without insurance for two years or more. And those are the people that we need to take care of. Of that, of the people, the 18 million who are going to join Medicaid, of the 50 million, we have about 14 million who are already eligible for Medicaid and CHIP and haven't signed up. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that doctors don't want to take Medicaid patients because that reimbursement rate is even a lot lower than they get for treating people on Medicare, our seniors. That's a really interesting point because you hear a lot about these people who are eligible for federal programs, specifically Medicaid, but not taking advantage of them. That's a a significant component of of the uninsured. And are you suggesting that one of the reasons they do that is because they don't sign up because Medicaid doesn't help them very much because doctors won't take Medicaid patients? Yes, and we've seen that a bit in Massachusetts, um, you know, under under uh, Romney Care. So I think, you know, it's definitely a case. And we're seeing also, you know, under Obamacare, um, they were going to take $50 million, uh, $500 million out of uh, Medi- Medicare to transfer to Medicaid to help bring these people onto Medicaid. But, you know, I think we're already seeing that one in three new Medicare-eligible patients are having a hard time finding a doctor because there's been a a big debate over reimbursement rates for docs. The sustainable growth rate, um, the reimbursement rate is sort of in place till the end of 2012, but doctors are reimbursed about 20% lower for treating Medicare patients today um, than they are for treating private patients. And so a lot of docs are 
you know, I think a lot of docs, we can talk about this, are probably going to get out of the practice of medicine unless Obamacare is repealed and replaced. But there's definitely pressure on older people to try and find a doctor when docs don't want to take them. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about uh, doctor practices because that's something I, I want to get into. There has been a lot of analysis about this question of what doctors are going to do. Some might, as you suggest, get out of the practice of medicine altogether. Others might join in large hospital groups or work for insurance companies or HMOs or I guess these new ACOs, the Accountable Care Organizations. But one thing that we are likely to see a reduction in is this small business, individual practice, entrepreneurial style practice. Do you see that as a, a wave of the past and you know, something that's going to be going away in the future? Well, I think, you know, the, um, the, the graduating residents and specialties uh, today, the recent numbers out, 49% of graduating specialists are now joining hospitals and not going into fee-for-service or concierge or joining um, groups. So that that is very worrying. These docs are going to become like nine-to-fivers. I mean, they will get a salary, and they will be um, on salary. I think um, Deloitte Touche came out with a study um, last year showing that um, – about 75% of docs surveyed said they're seriously considering getting out of the practice of medicine. They're concerned about the, how future health care, unless the legislation is repealed. The Physicians Foundation just came out last week with a study of doctors under the age of 40. I'm not under 40 anymore, but, but showing that 49% of these docs under 40 are very concerned about the future of medicine under, um, under the Affordable Care Act. And about 57% believe that the brightest young people will not go into medicine because of the Affordable Care Act. So, um, And then the Center for Workforce Studies showed that by 2019, there will be a shortage of 91,000 uh, primary care doctors and general surgeons. So in Canada, the country I'm from, when the president kept saying over and over again in his speeches, we need more doctors in primary care, it's going to reduce cost. Well, 17% of 32 million Canadians are waiting to get a general practitioner or primary care doctor because docs don't want to go into it because they're at the low man on the totem pole in terms of what they're being paid. But, you know, it's going to be more of a problem if we have fewer primary care doctors. And as I say, the Center for Workforce Studies is predicting that shortage. So, you know, a lot of docs may retire. A lot of the brightest people won't go into medicine. And then a lot of docs are joining hospital groups, accountable care organizations. So I think it's very worrying. You know, one of the reasons that doctors may choose to change their practice is financial, as you, as you suggest. It costs the, the the reimbursement rates are lower, the costs are too high, or for whatever reason, they can't make as much money as they might have in the past. But another reason is the desire to practice medicine and the desire to push the boundaries of medicine and innovation. You have a very interesting chapter about innovation and the benefits to innovation. Uh, how do you see innovation being challenged by the Obama health care law, and how would you fix that problem? Well, of course, under um, starting next year in 2013, there are a number of two new taxes that come into being, one being the 2.3% tax on medical device companies, and, of course, uh, new taxes on um, uh, drug companies, new levies on them. So I think this, the Affordable Care Act is really going to have a negative impact on research and development in medical device and in pharmaceuticals. And we've already seen in the private equity market and venture cap money drying up for R&D. And as, um, um, you know, it's been pointed out, uh, Frank Lichtenberg, for every $1 spent on newer pharmaceuticals, we're saving about $7 on hospital costs. So not only 
um, our new drugs, you know, keeping people out of the hospital, they allow us to live longer and healthier lives. The United States is where all of that R&D is done. It's not done in countries like France and Germany and Spain and England where there are price controls. So, you know, it's going to be very harmful to all of us if we do not, we're not sort of the generator of, um, of, of research and development into new procedures. And I think um, Elizabeth Warren, who is running uh, for the uh, Democrats in Massachusetts, she came out yesterday not saying she was against the 2.3% medical device tax. Because Massachusetts has a lot of, of those companies. And we've seen Stryker in Michigan saying they're going to cut their workforce by 5% you know, because of this tax. So it's a very much a disincentive to R&D. It, there was a funny headline, I believe it was in the Examiner today, about Elizabeth Warren and said even Elizabeth Warren wants to repeal part of the Obama health care <laughs> yeah. law. And uh, she was obviously one of the strongest advocates for it. Um, another thing that affects how doctors practice is the IPAB, the Independent Advisory Board, the Independent Payment Advisory Board. Can you talk a little bit about the IPAB, how it would work or not work, and what ways we need to take, what, what steps we need to take to address that? Yeah, the IPAB, the Independent Payment Advisory Board. When I speak to young audiences, I say I'm, I'm talking about the IPAB, not the iPad, <laughs> which everyone uses. The Independent Payment Advisory Board is part of the law. It would be a 15-member board um, appointed um, by the administration. and by. Have the, you been asked to join the board yet? Uh, no, not yet. Have you, have, have you Debbie? <laughs> um, yeah, well, they do have to have some Republican members, so they, yes, they might so, want you. <laughs> well, they might want some that are much more liberal than I am. Um, so this is going to be an oversight board, which is going to attempt to reduce the costs of the Medicare, Medicare program. I believe it is a rationing board because um, the, while they will not be able to turn back um, the amounts of money that docs are reimbursed, they will have a very um, major role in determining what doctors are paid for treating Medicare patients. And I think it, it is a rationing board. I don't like to talk about death panels, but in fact, you know, if doctors, you know, have an incentive to provide less care to our seniors, um, they're going to do that. And so it is a rationing of health care for seniors. What do you think of this whole death panel charge? I mean, look, I'm against rationing. Uh, I think death panel is sort of an overstated phrase and uh, and, and probably not the way I I would approach it. But what, what do you think about the charge and the counter charges on it? Well, yeah, I don't like to use death panel either, but it is a very specific term. People get it. But IPAB is a rationing board. And I can just say that, you know, coming from Canada, a country that spends about 10.4% of gross domestic product on health care, that's what the government says they can afford to spend. They set a global budget. Here in America, we spend about 17.9% of GDP, the most um, in, the, in the world. But Americans are impatient. They want the very best. They want it now. Um, but I think... Um, you know, Canada, um, because they only spend 10.4% of GDP on health care, uh, there are long waits. The average wait today from seeing a primary care doctor to treatment by a specialist is 19 weeks. That's almost five months. And care is rationed. And I'll just give you an example that my own mother in Canada thought in 05, June, that she had colon cancer. She went to her doctor who checked her stomach and said, well, you don't have colon cancer. And she called me and I said, well, that's not how you determine if you have colon cancer. And so... I said, she needs a, you need a colonoscopy. And she was told, because she was a senior, that there were a lot of people under 65 who were on long waiting lists about six months and up to get a colonoscopy, and they were hemorrhaging, so she couldn't get one. So by November of '05, my mother had lost 30 pounds, and she started to hemorrhage. And so I called the doctor. She went to the hospital in an ambulance. She spent two days in the emergency room. 
two days in the transit lounge waiting for a bed and a ward. She got her colonoscopy, and my mom died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. So that is care that's rationed, and it, it's very sad. And it's not a death panel, but it is rationed care, and I believe that this will happen um, under under Obamacare. We need to make changes to Medicare, the program for our seniors, there's no question. But Nancy Pelosi saying seniors are going to die in the streets if we do any of the things like premium support, raising the eligibility age, means testing. People will die in the streets. People are going, Seniors are going to die in the streets unless we make those changes. The Congressional Budget Office came out a couple of weeks ago and said Medicare, which costs about $500 billion a year now, will cost $1 trillion in 2022, and it will be bankrupt. So when Medicare came into being in 1965, of course, the average life expectancy was 65. Today, it's 79.5. It's an expensive program. Why should people like Warren Buffett, you know, be on Medicare? He can well afford his own health care. And we need Medicare there for those seniors who really do need um, a program because they don't have the financial means um, to get doctors. But it, I don't, as I say, I don't like to use death panels, but when care is rationed, it does, it's cheaper to let people die than to have expensive care uh, when you're a senior. Well, well, first of all, that's a terrible story, and I'm sorry for your loss. So um, my my condolences on on that front. Uh, You did raise this issue of Medicare and how we're going to pay for it. And your your book, I believe, feels a need in terms of the question of having Republican alternatives, which I I think, uh, as I said earlier, there, there have not been enough out there. But to the extent that people do know of a Republican alternative health plan, it is the Paul Ryan plan, which is the premium supports plan, as you suggested, which has been derided by the uh, by the, the Democrats. I, I wrote an, an article for commentary that you and I have discussed about Medicare and right. the whole tactic of, of trying to scare people into saying keep Medicare as is, as you suggested, keeping Medicare as is is really a recipe for disaster from a financial and from a debt perspective. But what, what do you think of the Paul Ryan plan? I know you think you said in the book that it's imperfect, but do, do you think that's the way to go, premium support, and how would you perfect such a plan? Right. Well, I'm definitely in favor of premium support. I, my, my ultimate thing would be giving people straight vouchers and letting them decide um, how to spend their money and get their health care. But under premium support, seniors um, would purchase their health insurance in a federal um, exchange, federal Medicare exchange. And that makes me a little bit nervous because it's putting the federal government more in charge. So I would, I don't like the idea of a, um, a, med, a federal Medicare exchange, but I think premium support is a good idea. Whether the money, the support is going to go directly to the insurance company or it's going to go to the patient, I would prefer the, 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 the support to go to the, um, the patient and let them decide where they want to purchase their insurance. I like Paul Ryan's plan a lot. He had the plan then with um, Ron Wyden, the Democrat, and of course that was going to be the increase was going to be tied to GDP growth plus one percent. His new plan is GDP growth plus 0.5 percent, and Ron Wyden hasn't bought into that. But I think um, what Paul Ryan is talking about, we have to change Medicare, um, and we, we don't want to scare seniors. But Medicare will be there unless we do make changes to this program, because if it's bankrupt, um, those people that need uh, support. It's not going to be there for them. And, it, and, you know, when people think something is free, they use a lot more of it. You mentioned Rod Wyden, and I'm glad you did. John Bro, who's a Democratic senator from Louisiana, he was one of the fathers of this idea of premium support. Alice Rivland, who was right. a former Democratic head of uh, OMB. Uh, was originally with Paul Ryan on, on the way he conceived the, his premium support plan. Now Ron Wyden, 
joined with Paul Ryan. So there is a bipartisan element to this idea. At the same time, the attacks on the premium sport idea are also highly partisan. And I know that Ron Wyden got hit pretty hard for joining on with, with Paul Ryan on the uh, on his Medicare premium support plan. So what, what do you think of the politics of this and how did that play out going forward? Well, it's obviously it's very political. And of course, Ron Wyden had a plan um, with um, Bob Bennett when he was the Republican senator from uh, Utah. And he's not he's um, out of office now. But I think it is very political. But I think there's definitely a number of Democrats who understand, uh, like John Burrow, that we cannot continue along this path. And, you know, we need um, bipartisan support for changing Medicare. And uh, some of the people like Nancy Pelosi, of course, very extreme left liberal side of the Democratic Party don't don't like this. But where is where is the money going to come from? If we tax Americans more and more, there are a number of tax increases under Obamacare. And we just saw um, last week um, the study that came out from Mercatus um, that, you know, the deficit is going to um, Obamacare will increase the deficit by somewhere over 10 years at 2012 to 2021 by 340 billion, maybe up to 520 billion. You know, tax increases, tax is going to destroy this country. We're becoming an entitlement society like Spain and Greece and France. And that is not the American way. We want to bring the entrepreneurial spirit back, have America continue to be an expanding economy, opportunity, growth. And this legislation um, is um, not going to do that. And that's why Medicare is very important that the Democrats and Republicans get on board and change that Medicare program so it can live for those who need it. Sally, we usually have a standard question here, a final question, a wrap-up question on new books and public policy, which is, if you were czar for a day, what would you do in this area? But your book really answers that question, so I can't exactly ask the question as it is, but let me put it this way. What do you think are the prospects for seeing your czar for a day plan come into effect, and, and how long would it take? Well, remember Bill Bennett, he always said he was a health czar and his wife, um, Elaine, was a czarina. So I'll be the czarina for the day. Um, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I think that, you know, with up anywhere from 56 to 62 percent of Americans would like to see this legislation repealed. It was signed. Uh, it was passed without a single Republican vote. The American people don't like it. We've seen numbers up to 72 percent of Americans don't like the individual mandate. So, you know, the American people want to bring back empowerment to doctors and patients into health care and we'll get to affordable, accessible, quality care. So when I'm the czar, my plan will come in and we will um, move forward with the types of things I'm talking about. And I won't have to go back to Canada um, because I, I think that, you know, America is going on this path to Medicare for all where government runs the health care system. I, that is just, um, as a czarina for the day, I just don't want that. To paraphrase Mel Brooks, it's good to be the czarina. Sally Pipes, thank you so much for joining us today on New Books and Public Policy. Good luck with the book. Thank you, Tevi, so much. Thank you for listening to my interview with Sally Pipes, the author of The Pipes Plan. In our interview, we talked about the ways the Obama health care law may not meet its expectations in terms of access and cost. But we also talked about some of the real-world impact of government intervention in the healthcare sphere. In fact, Sally told a very moving and tragic story about her mother who lives in Canada and was unable to get the health care she needed and ended up dying from colon cancer. It was a very sad story and a very real reminder of the impact of public policy decisions 
on the lives of individuals in this country and around the world. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I hope you continue to listen. And this is Tevi Troy for New Books and Public Policy signing off and saying keep reading.